Welcome to Law and Film. I'm Jonathan Hayfitz, and in this podcast, we're going to explore the rich connections between law and film. Law is critical to many films, even to those that aren't obviously about the law. And film, in turn, tells us a lot about the law, especially how it's understood and perceived by society. Each episode will examine a film that's noteworthy from a legal perspective, in addition to being noteworthy in their own right as films. What legal concepts does the film explore? What does the film get right about the law? And what does it get wrong? Why is the law important to understanding the film? And what does the film teach us about the law and the broader society and culture in which the law is embedded, both when it was made and today? This episode, we're going to be discussing another great film, Anatomy of a Murder from 1959. It's directed by Otto Preminger with a script by Wendell Curran Mays. And it's based on the novel of the same name by a Michigan or former Michigan Supreme Court Justice, John Volker, who was writing under the pen name Robert Traver. It's based on a true story, also has a fantastic score by Duke Ellington. It's a courtroom drama set in Michigan's Upper Peninsula near Thunder Bay. And Paul Beagler, played by Jimmy Stewart, is a small town attorney and former DA who's coming off the heels of a lost bid for re-election, is asked by Laura Mannion, played by Lee Remick, to defend her husband, a U.S. Army lieutenant named Frederick Mannion, played by young Ben Gazzara, uh, to defend Gazzara, or Mannion, who's been arrested for the murder of a local innkeeper, Barney Quill. The film traces Beagler's defense of Mannion and the trial. There's no dispute in the film that Mannion committed the crime. The only question is whether he has a valid defense. And there's a cast of other great characters we're going to talk about. Beagler's assistant, played by Eve Arden, his uh, co-counsel, an older attorney, Parnell McCarthy, played by Arthur O'Connell. And the two prosecutors, George C. Scott uh, as Claude Dancer and uh, Brooks West as Mitch Ludwig, uh, both who are prosecuting the case. And then Kath Grant as Mary Pilant, who is another important person in the, uh, in the trial. And then finally, we have a appearance by the real-time lawyer, Joseph Welch, who uh, represented the U.S. Army in the Army McCarthy hearings, plays the judge in the case, a uh, very important figure historically, um, largely credited with, with uh, discrediting McCarthy at the hearing. So he plays the judge. So it's a great film on many levels, but joined today by Josh Dreitel. So I'm going to introduce Josh and then we'll uh, dive in. Josh Dreitel is a partner at, and founder at the firm of Dreitel & Lewis. Josh has been practicing for criminal law for over 30 years. And he's tried numerous cases in federal and state courts uh, around the country involving some of the most complex issues. He's a phenomenal courtroom lawyer. Uh, he's represented a range of different clients and he's widely recognized for his work. He's been a super lawyer in New York for uh, over 15 years. He's widely published in uh, books and, and uh, other articles, writing on criminal law. And his work has been recognized. He's received numerous awards from the New York uh, Criminal Bar Association um, and other organizations. And he's also been the head of prominent criminal defense organizations, like the New York State Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, uh, National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. So he's had a prominent role in all these organizations 
and is uh, just a great person to have on the show to discuss this film. So uh, without further ado, uh, Josh, welcome. Thanks for having me, John. It's great to be here. Great. So Anatomy of a Murder. Uh, it's a great film, uh, and I'm looking forward to talking with you about it. But let's start with just a question. When when did you first see the film, and what were your impressions then? And and, if you, and when you saw it more recently, uh, did, did anything strike you differently? I first saw it probably as an adolescent, 12 or 13 years old, in the late 60s. And it impressed me then as a very morally ambiguous drama even then it's it it does that very effectively i've probably seen it two or three times since and it's always it augmented its place as for me the the, the best courtroom drama uh, among films and i was very happy that you suggested that one because it turns out that's the one i like the most in that regard and when i watched it again in preparation here what struck me was how accurate some of it was both in the macro but also in the nuances and also how it foreshadowed some other changes that we're still going through in the law and society as a whole. You know, I agree it's a great courtroom drama I think one of the best uh, courtroom dramas ever made. Why is it so hard? I mean there's so many movies that are uh, about uh, you know the law and and the court tends to be the main focus got drama built into it what makes it so hard to make a courtroom drama and what makes this movie so successful at it i think the hard part is that the the points of drama in a trial are not as many as you see on television and movies and to compress the fullness of a trial and its pace and the tension into a two-hour feature is very difficult and as a result you get a lot of exposition you get a lot of speechifying and you get a lot of contrived drama in many of the portrayals and this somehow avoids it it's a little long it's a long movie it's about two and a half hours but at the same time it's one of the few movies that I don't think skips a single witness at the trial, which is amazing. When I was watching it this time, I noticed that too. And yet it it somehow keeps the tension taut and in, and building towards what you know is going to be the climax, which is the testimony of the defendant, Ben Gazzara, testifying as, as Mannion, and his wife, Lee Remick, playing Laura. So you're constantly waiting for the main event while all these smaller pieces of the case are presented uh, through the prosecution case mostly. And then when you get to the defense case, I mean, look, the acting is superior in almost every respect, which helps tr uh, tremendously. But I think the somehow capturing the completeness of a trial without becoming too mundane as trials tend to be if you sit through all of them. And that's that's the hardest part for, for me as an observer. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I mean, the way the film is able to be to build in drama, to be incredibly kind of entertaining, keep you on the edge of your seat, and yet not lose the realism, or at least some of the realism and some of the granularity of yeah. an actual criminal trial, where you'll have your maybe you'll have your dramatic moments, but there's a lot of uh, other things that uh, are in between that maybe you know less entertaining. So its ability to kind of bridge that gap is amazing. Um, yeah. So, and one of the, and here, you know, another interesting thing is we don't, unlike other 
courtroom drama movies or some other courtroom drama movies, there's no mystery about what happened, uh, really, right? I mean, it's very clear, it's established from the beginning. There's no question that Lieutenant Mannion, character played by Ben Gazzara, uh, killed Barney Quill, right? Now there's some question, I mean, there are two questions, right? One is regarding his motive and whether the relationship between uh, Laura Mannion, his wife, and Barney Quill, was it a kind of a flirtation or was it a rape? The legal question is, Will Manny get off? Is does, is his defense going to be valid? And so there's early on, uh, Jimmy Stewart plays Paul Beagler, the, the Manny's lawyer, goes and uh, talks to uh, a Manny to try to figure out the defense. So I'm going to play the clip for you now. This interview between uh, Jimmy Stewart and Ben Gazzara, right, the defense lawyer and the client, and then. We'll talk about kind of what Jimmy Stewart is doing here and and, uh, and what you make of it. There are four ways I can defend murder. Number one, it wasn't murder. It's suicide, accidental. Number two, you didn't do it. Number three, you were legally justified, like the protection of your home or self-defense. Number four, the killing was excusable. What do I say in case it was eviction? You don't say none of the first three. But why? Why wouldn't I be legally justified in killing a man who raped my wife? Time out. Now, if you'd caught him on the act, the shooting might have been justified, but you didn't catch him on the act. And you had time to bring in the police. You didn't do that either. You're guilty of murder. Premeditated and with vengeance. That's first degree murder in any court of law. But are you telling me to plead guilty? I advise you to cop out. You'll know. Cop out. Let's plead guilty and ask for mercy. But if you're not telling me to cop out, what are you telling me to do? I'm not telling you to do anything. I just want you to understand the letter of the law. Go on. Go on with what? Whatever it is you're getting at. You know, you're very bright, Lieutenant. Now, let's see how really bright you can be. Working at it. All right. Now, because your wife was raped, you'll have a favorable atmosphere in the courtroom. The sympathy will be with you if all the facts are true. What you need is a legal peg so that the jury can hang up their sympathy in your behalf. You follow me? Mm-hmm. What's your legal excuse, Lieutenant? What's your legal excuse for killing Barney Quill? Uh, no justification. No justification. Excuse. Or just excuse. Excuses. How should I know? You're the one that plugged Quill. It's a great scene. So, you know, there's a lot more drama when it's on the screen, a lot of great pregnant pauses. But Josh, help break down here what's going on in the scene, what Jimmy Stewart's approach is. and some of the ramifications. Yes, this is one of the nuances that's appreciated by practitioners like myself because defenses in crimes, particularly crimes that require intent, is very often internal rather than external, meaning that they come from the client in large respect that have to be corroborated by other evidence. But here, Jimmy Stewart does something that is 
I think very typical among lawyers and particularly lawyers who are doing the job correctly, which is explaining the elements of an offense to a client. In other words, what does the government have to prove or what are the possible defenses? Things like that uh, avoids the the problem of trying to fit a square peg into a round hole with a client. The client has to essentially provide the information and provide the impetus for that kind of defense. And Jimmy Stewart is very expertly leading him in that direction by first excluding things that the evidence will never support, but then essentially prompting him without giving him the answer to find on his own a particular avenue that they can pursue. Now, the second part is is part of the rest of the movie, which is, does it really match a legal defense? And, and that's also part of the process of developing a defense, which is it has to have it has to have two elements. It has to have factual support and it has to have some legal precedent to which you can bind that factual support to get to the jury with that defense. Yeah. And on the factual part here is, well, on both, I guess, is I mean, is Jimmy Stewart, is he is he aided here by the fact that his clients, you know, fairly intuitive, fairly bright. I mean, he's, he kind of leads him, but the client gets it right. And follows the uh, trail of breadcrumbs. Correct. And, and obviously you want a client whose ability to pay attention to what you're telling them is, is that they can, that they can generate it on their own because that's much more effective as well than something that's fed that's never really owned by the client in a in an intellectual or emotional way those defenses often fail so this was a much more effective way of developing a defense and what and what Mannion thinks is his defense maybe his moral defense that quill raped his wife uh you know jimmy stewart says that's not that's not a legal defense that's not gonna get you off although as we'll see Later on, that that does become kind of a backdrop of the drama at trial and the subtext, because even if it's not legal issue, it does make a difference in how they perceive the case. So as we see, a lot of the trial is going to actually be about whether Laura Mannion was, uh, you know, flirting with and uh, soliciting, uh, being solicitous of Barney Quill, or whether Quill raped her. So right, that it's an it's an interesting. So in some sense, Mannion is kind of right, even if he's not, uh, uh, even if he's not right legally. Right. And, and you know, as Jimmy Stewart says, the jury will possibly be in your favor because of the motivations. But at the same time, we know that most of the time, predominantly, an unsympathetic defendant does not benefit from a technical defense, no matter how ironclad it would be. And by the same token, a sympathetic defense can get the benefit of the doubt from a marginal legal defense. And so the the context of the entire offense conduct is very important. And a jury may be sympathetic and latch on to something in a jury instruction or something that the defense attorney has presented as a viable legal defense to manifest that sympathy for the client. Yeah, that's it's really interesting how that how that plays out and, and this scene. And and when they when we talk about the legal defense. The actual defense, it's um, 
Jimmy Stewart doesn't have it figured out quite yet, right? And so we get to the the defense, um, which is well, there would be a defense of temporary insanity. That's one possible defense, but for that, the defendant would have to not know the difference between right or wrong. So instead, they they stumble upon this defense by looking through the old law books. And I love this film. You know, it, it dates the film, but it's charming, right? They're actually doing their research out of the law books. They, they look at the ALR, the old reporter that, that carries the case from the jurisdictions. And so they come upon this defense. And so what's the defense they ultimately uh, stumble upon or, or uh, realize? Yes, it's called irresistible impulse, uh, which is essentially this dissociative reaction is the psycho psychiatric, I guess, term for it. But the more colloquial term is irresistible impulse that for a period of time, he lost the ability to control himself and acted on this impulse without really knowing what he did. And and in a sort of a, a state of a trance-like state almost. And it's funny when you talk about the the reporters and going through the the actual books is that I was I was struck by when they show the Supreme Court reporters, they fit in 1959, they fit on a single shelf. Now <laughs> we get it. <laughs> you know, now we're now we're 50. What are we? What are we? 60 years down the road? It, it, you can't fit them in, in the house. <laughs> you can't fit them in, yet, you know, law firms, they have them. I mean, I think large, I mean, largely, I guess maybe for uh partners or lawyers from a, a, a several generations ago, but largely because it, you know, I think it looks good. Like how can you have a law firm without like a law library and you have the books in back, but back then they were actually uh, using it and uh, right. probably it actually made it um, more, uh, you know, that they, they were able to find the case, but the prosecution didn't. Right. So there's that scene where yeah. uh, the prosecution, I think it's George C. Scott as dance or real, I think he's got, you know, he's got the, you know, the, the defense to admit that he could, you know, he was able to tell the difference between right and wrong. So he's got no defense, right? There's no temporary insanity defense, but then they're back in chambers, right? And uh, Jimmy Stewart basically skewers him and says, well, you know, take a look at this case. Yes. And and if you can do that, that's really an advantage because if the prosecution knew of that avenue for defense starting out, they could tailor their case in a very different way to try to cut them off at the pass uh, through a lot of different witness testimony. So uh, it, it, the, the element of surprise there is extraordinarily valuable and very effective in the, in the case. One of the other things the film does is uh, very well, I think, is show how cross-examination is used to trial. So, uh, and this is a critical feature of uh, American trials, uh, jury trials, so can you say a little bit about the role of cross-examination and then maybe we can hear a little bit more from the film? Sure. And, and this is also actually one of the problems with making movies about courtroom dramas, which is cross-examination is rarely, if ever, a narrative. The direct is the narrative. What happened? What happened next? What happened next? Cross-examination is a mosaic of trying to do a variety of different things. One perhaps is to impeach the witness, to to, to prove them to be not credible. Second, maybe to get from them specific facts that fit into a theory that doesn't depend on the bad stuff that the person has testified about. And a third might be to set up another witness or to set up another uh, aspect of the case down the road in a way that gives you something in the record. So for cross-examination, you're trying to 
create a record, but you're also, but, but at the same time, you have to score points in front of the jury to keep the jury from thinking that this is a slam dunk for the prosecution. So you could be making all sorts of points on cross-examination that are very effective in making the record, but the jury doesn't get it until you sum up by then they've made up their mind. You have to, you have to make gains against the government's story, the prosecution's story against the witness's credibility in real time so that the jury keeps an open mind like, oh, well, maybe the guy's not telling the truth. Maybe we shouldn't believe him or this inconsistency is rather dramatic. And what you find in the movie that I think is very effective and it's not quite as tolerated as it used to be. And so there have been attempts by judges to cut people off, which is when you make an objection, when you ask a question, you load it with your theory so that the jury hears a little bit more of a narrative of what you want to convey rather than simply a question that gets a yes or no answer. And that's another part of cross-examination that's hard and takes a lot of preparation and a lot of, even despite the amount of preparation you put into it, it takes a lot of thinking on your feet when you're up doing it because it never goes as scripted and you will have to make adjustments as you go along and how to communicate something coherent to a jury when you're not in control of the witness at all, the witness is fighting you every step of the way. And in the movie, by the way, as I was saying, so the interplay, you know, Jimmy Stewart goes through these uh, objections that try to convey his defense and the prosecutor is constantly trying to stop him from doing it and the judge admonishes him. But it's effective in, in getting that out in front of the jury. And that's actually a very effective part of the movie is the interplay between both sets of lawyers during the trial, which is a very important part of a case. Yeah, let's play a clip of when I think one moment where Jimmy Stewart does that and gets chastised by uh, the judge um, uh, played by Joseph Welch. Did you see Lieutenant Mannion on the night of the 15th, the night Barney Quill was killed? Yes, sir. Will you tell the court about the how and, and, and when you saw Lieutenant Mannion? About 1 a.m., a knock on my door wake me up. I went to the door and Lieutenant Mannion was standing there. He said, you better take me, Mr. Lemon, because I just shot Barney Quill. I told him to go back to his trailer and that I would call the state police. How did Lieutenant Mannion appear to you when he asked you to take him? He said what he had to say and did what I told him. There wasn't any fuss. Did he appear to you to be, as far as you could tell, in complete possession of his faculties? As far as I could tell, yes. Thank you, witness. Lemon, did you go to the Mannion's trailer? Yes, sir. Did you see Mrs. Mannion at the trailer? Yes, sir. What was her appearance? She was a mess. Jackson, no evidence has been introduced to make Mrs. Mannion's appearance relevant to this case. Now, well, no evidence has been introduced to make Barney Quill's appearance relevant. If you didn't object to the question then, is that because you know that Barney Quill bathed and changed and cooled off after he raped and beat hell out of this poor woman? Your Honor, everybody in this court is being tried except Frederick Mannion. I must protect him. Now, listen, this is a cross-examination. <laughs> what are you and Dancer trying to do? Why won't you just put your head on the plate? Mr. Bigler, you are an experienced attorney. And you know better than to make such an outburst. I will not tolerate intemperance of this sort. If you once again try the patience of this court, I shall hold you in contempt. 
Your Honor, it won't happen again. The witness answer will be stricken and the jury will disregard the answer. How calculated was what Jimmy Stewart did? How effective was it? It's calculated in the sense that he's trying to set up the need to get Laura Mannion's condition into the record, also to foreshadow that this is going to be about what happened to her at the hands of Barney Quill. And the the prosecution is trying to keep everything very narrow. This is another challenge in defending cases, which is the prosecution's efforts are to keep everything very narrow to what it wants to present. And anytime the defense on cross-examination tries to get beyond the scope of the direct exam, you hear a lot of relevance objections. And a judge who doesn't want the defense or is not really paying attention enough to understand what the defense is getting at will reflexively say, hey, yeah, it's not part of that. It's very hard to get your defense in through cross-examination. And this this, this particular uh, passage is a good demonstration of that. Uh, the judge obviously was had, had a, a certain style that was what I would call avuncular, but he still obviously exercised his authority. The other advantage is that over time, Jimmy Stewart kind of wears down the resistance of the judge by his emotional commitment to the process. So he goes even further later on in terms of his emotional investment in getting his defense in. And I think it has an effect on the judge. And it does have effect on judges when advocates have passion for their position. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point, and it's done so effectively here. He loses this battle. He makes his point, and the jury certainly hears it. And that's the other audience. Um, but there's a critical moment, I think, in terms of the getting the this this uh, defense in through another cross examination, and this is one where uh, Jimmy Stewart wins. It seems like in the silence that we'll hear as the judge is deliberating, he's kind of playing with his watch. Um, there's you know, a sense that the in a, you know the, the defense is almost hanging on on how the judge is going to rule. Is he going to allow uh, this line of questioning or not? So let's take a look at this other uh, or listen, I should say. Let's take a listen to this other cross examination. Sergeant Durgo, you testified that Lieutenant Mannion told you that he shot Barney Quill after he learned that his wife had had some trouble with Quill. Now, were these the words Lieutenant Mannion used? Some trouble? No, sir, those were my words, not his. And was it your notion to come here and use your own words? No, sir, it was not. And was the suggestion to call it some trouble made by somebody here in this courtroom? Yes, sir, it was. All right, Sergeant, now would you tell the court what words Lieutenant Mannion actually used to describe the trouble his wife had had? Objection, Your Honor. We've been over this before. This information would not be relevant to any issues before the court. Now, this statement concerning some trouble was brought out during the direct examination of Sergeant Dargo. Up to now, you've adroitly restricted all testimony as far as Laura Mannion's concerned. All right, the cat's out of the bag. It's fair game for me to chase it. This is a sore point, Mr. Beagler, and it's getting sore. I'd like to hear from the prosecution. The burden is on the defense to prove temporary insanity at the time of the shooting. Now, if the reason for the alleged insanity is important to this case, then that is a matter for a competent witness. 
an expert on the subject of the human mind. What the defense is trying to do is introduce some sensational material for the purposes of obscuring the real issues. Your Honor, how can the jury accurately estimate the testimony being given here unless they first know the reason behind this whole trial? Why Lieutenant Mannion shot Barney Quill? Now, the prosecution would like to separate the motive from the act. Well, well that's, that's like trying to take the core from an apple without breaking the skin. Well, now, the core of our defense is that the defendant's temporary insanity was triggered by the so-called trouble with Quill. And I beg the court, I, I beg the court to let me cut into the apple. Our objection still stands, Your Honor. Objection overruled. When he says, you know, the motive and the act, what are what are they talking about here? The why someone did it as opposed to the thing that the person did. The why is actually not an element of many offenses. It doesn't matter why. If someone's, you know, if someone steals a, a, a package of diapers because their kid is in need and they don't have money, that's actually not a defense. So motive is not as important. It can be important in punishment, but on, but in many respects, it's not important if you intend to do something. But it's important for defendants with respect to certain defenses that have to do, again, with, you know, the, the, the irresistible impulse uh, defense here and other defenses, motive. But the government, you know, the prosecution is looking to keep motive out because they know the motive here is one that is sympathetic to the defendant. Uh, it, there are these times of trials where you're trying through one witness, through another witness, through another witness to get something in, to get something in, and you're stymied and you're stymied. And then finally, you feel the tide begin to turn. The judge is going to permit it. And you walk back to the podium and you take a deep breath. You say, all right, now I got to really capitalize on this. And fortunately, this is a movie and, and he was able to do so. Um, but, you know, the, these situations do occur where you feel a certain tide turning with respect to the ability to put this information in front of the jury. And I guess with for the prosecution, they would they want to keep out the motive. They want to keep out you know, the, the idea that he uh, killed Barney Quill too because she was raped by he raped his wife, Laura Mannion. Um, and their view, I guess the focus would just be on, even on if taking the defense of whether there was an irresistible impulse. And that's a question for a psychiatrist, right? Or a, or a mental health expert and take the motive out. But was he just actually unable to control himself? Right. And, and you know, in, in terms of, for example, there are certain defenses of state of mind, let's say justification, which wasn't an issue here. But it depends on there are certain things that are relevant, such as what the defendant knew. And then there's things that aren't relevant as to what the defendant didn't know. So, for example, if the defendant knew that someone he was in an argument with had killed two people in arguments, uh, that might support a justification defense uh, as to why he struck first. If he didn't know that the, 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 pers the, the person he ends up killing had killed two people in an argument, that would not be something that would come in because it wouldn't have affected the defendant's state of mind. There are middle ground, real gray areas in these types of cases as to what's an objective fact that might be useful, such as that someone was 
very large or had, was menacing or something. These are really the tough parts of cases uh, when you get into how you can corroborate a defense with other evidence, because you just don't want it to be a psychiatrist with a, a, a psychiatric diagnosis, which some people just don't trust. You want to fill it. You want to flesh it out with actual facts that could put you a juror in a position to say, oh, I understand why that diagnosis makes sense here. If there's no reason for Mannion to be upset to the extent that he would have this irresistible impulse, then the irresistible impulse sounds totally contrived. If you know why the underlying facts led him to that, you may have it, uh, you may give, you lend it more credibility. Yeah, and the delay is right. The time gap between like when he know when he learns and when he goes and kills Barney Quill is significant. You know, it's an hour plus. So it's a it's a lot of time, and that hurts, right? That right. makes oh no, no question, no no question. That's that 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 eliminates a certain defense, and also, you know, the, the, the when you asked about the prosecution, uh, what what they're trying to do is it gets back to the the conversation that you played earlier, where Beagler develops a defense with Mannion, which is the, the prosecution is trying to keep it to those aspects for which there is no defense, you know, the, that, that aren't available. Right. So let's talk about Laura Mannion a little bit. I mean, she's, uh, it's a great performance by Lee Remick. I mean, she's a you know key character uh, in the case. It's kind of a complex character um, and, a, and a very important role in the film. And I, there are a number of dimensions. I mean, there's, you know, I think we have the Laura Mannion as uh, Lieutenant Mannion's wife. Um, and then we have Laura Mannion as the, well, the witness, right? And her interaction with Beagler. Um, and then we have her on the stand. Well, let's talk about Laura Mannion and Beagler. How does Beagler um, uh, work with Laura Mannion? What are some of the challenges that he faces? Clients and their families are always looking to have the lawyer have an emotional investment in the case. They think that that will make the lawyer work harder and care more about the outcome. That's not necessarily true. Sometimes an emotional investment can cloud judgment. Not having an emotional investment is actually better and clients would do well to recognize that, but they don't because naturally they think that if someone's invested emotionally, they'll do a, a, a better job. So that to me was very much the first part of their interaction, which is her trying to get him interested in the case in a way that was more than just professional, but emotional. The The rest of it, you know, she has, I think part of it is developing her personality as someone who was flirtatious on a certain level. And the question being, is he going to try to take advantage of that. He's a bachelor that complicates the situation. These relationships can cross lines. And obviously it's important not to cross those lines. And he's careful not to, which is important for him professionally and also his ability to defend Mannion. But it does, it does help in terms of the drama of the story to have the, the audience, the viewer, can wonder about the relationship between Mannion and Quill in a way that the prosecution is promoting by the end of the movie. And 
so that it, it accomplishes a lot of things in the movie in terms of the professional part is you always have to be wary of clients and others involved looking to exploit some emotional connection that for reasons of number one line crossing, but two, doing a, a competent job, you, you just don't want that to be a complication. Yeah. And there are a lot of complications. I mean, Laura's also, she's, um, I mean, I think that there's a strong suggestion that she, uh, the first time we see her, she's got a black eye. She's been beaten up. Uh, and I think the implication it was done by, you know, Mannion. He was, he was pissed off about her uh, being with Quill and, and he hit her and doesn't seem to treat her that well. So she's in a, you know, it kind of a uh, locked in with him, but not in a great relationship. Right. Um, and that's the ambiguity that doesn't get resolved. I think by the end of the movie in many respects, but they are in it together in many respects. And they sort of commit to that for the trial. And that's also part of the family dynamic in many of these cases, not so much domestic violence type cases, but any cases where people are very disappointed in the conduct of others, but you know there are a lot of other factors that require people to circle the wagons, and and those who can marshal that with family and friends uh, have a much better shot at success than those who are isolated and ostracized, and that's another problem of trying to. So, for example, what if she? What if she was upset enough with him that she didn't want to testify in his behalf? You could imagine the outcome. Exactly. Yeah. I like that phrase, circle the wagons. And there's an interesting moment at the end. And, you know, we will spoil alert. Mannion's acquitted. We'll talk about and they uh, and we'll get to that a little bit more after. But where there's a comment that I think she said that that they when they uh, Jimmy Stewart and Parnell, the uh, the, the co-counsel, in the case, they go over to try to, yeah, after Mannion's release, to go pay a visit. Jimmy Stewart wants to get the IOU signed because Mannion never, had never paid him up front, didn't give him a retainer. And they they find out they left. And But Laura Mannion, the comments, Laura Mannion was crying, I think. There's a disconnect between her and, and, and her husband. We don't see a lot of them together, except at the very end, because he's in jail and she's outside. So that's another factor in the relationship that is cloudy for the first you know for the 91st 99% of the movie which is also by the way something that happens in real life too which is that you if you if you're the first time you meet a client is in jail and and you know they have a life outside of it it's 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 hard to place them back in it in your mind necessarily it is different there's a different presentation for someone who's in detention than there is for someone who's out on bail who comes into your office to the conference room, as opposed to shuffling down in a jumpsuit from whatever floor they're on to the visiting room. It creates a, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to project beyond that environment. And it, it, it's again, something that doesn't project well in the courtroom either. He had the advantage of wearing his uniform, uh, his army uniform, which, obviated the need to decide what what do we what does this guy wear you know you know there's the whole thing in, in trials of people who are in custody is what do they wear does, this, does someone who never wore a sport jacket in their life should they wear a sport jacket in front of the jury is that so there are all these these little things that can have implications that go beyond just the the, the specific isolated thing they are but their relationship the fact that she sat behind counsel table was very good 
um, something backfired. You know, she she tried to hide her hair and look look less alluring than she does outside. And the prosecution called her on that effectively. So there are certain strategies that are double edged swords, and it's hard to know when they're going to help and when they're not. Yeah, it's, and, and the film is great on those little points, right? I mean, that Mannion in his uniform, uh, you know, obviously, and you know, that's mentioned earlier. You'll have some, some sympathy as a uh, a veteran, and yeah, as you as you mentioned, right, Laura Mannion. You know, initially she's going to show up wearing um, the more revealing outfits that she tended to wear, and Jimmy Stewart says, "No, no, no, you've got to look like you're in the church choir," and, and then they do. The prosecution does call her on that, and and you know suggest that she was dressed up for court. So that's a but they, it does it hits all those like little things really well. Um, and there's the the Laura. The, well, then there's Laura Manning, how the prosecution tries to paint her. Uh, what do you make of that, and how the film treats the way they try to characterize Laura Manning? Is that would that happen today? Was that uh, something that was normal for the time? Well, certainly normal for the time. Uh, having seen it a, a number of times before, but not for probably a decade, watching it again now, I was struck by how the attacking the victim on both sides really flip-flopped in dramatic ways. So that in the old days, you know, in a in a sex offense, the the defense would attack the promiscuity of a of a victim if if available and then laws came into the rape shield laws and all of that which changed uh, the the permissible limits of what you could do and uh, the flip side is also Barney Quill you know his womanizing then becomes an issue at the same time so but I thought what was really striking to me was that I got the impression two-thirds through the movie uh and I want to say the impression just sort of the the visceral feeling that she was the defendant, that she was on trial. It was her conduct that was on trial. Nobody really blamed him for doing it morally, blamed Mannion for killing the the, the Barney Quill morally. Uh, legally, it was going to be decided by the jury, but as a moral issue, it wasn't that as, as, as blameworthy as her conduct. That's the way it seemed in the movie. And I think the movie, and I'm not saying the movie tried to do this. I'm saying the drama played this out. And in fact, her testimony took up a lot more time in the movie than Ben Gazzara's testimony, which is usually not the case when a defendant testifies. And I thought that was very interesting and and highlighted the asymmetry of the way the system used to operate. It's not completely cured of that, but it's certainly very different now. And then we can play a little bit of the cross of Laura Mannion by um, George C. Scott. Mrs. Mannion, what was your occupation before you were married? Housewife. Oh, then you've been married before? Yes, once. I suppose your first husband uh, died. No. Did you divorce your first husband to marry Lieutenant Mannion? Your Honor, if counsel wants to know the grounds for Miss Mannion's divorce, let him ask that question. What were the grounds for divorce, Mrs. Mannion? Mental cruelty. Naturally. And how long after your divorce was it that you married, Lieutenant? I'm not sure. May I refresh the witness's memory for Mr. Dancer? No, me. I believe she told me that they were married three days after the divorce. Thank you, Mr. Beaver. Is that correct, Mr. Mann? Yes. Then unless yours was a whirlwind courtship, you must have known Lieutenant Mannion before your divorce, did you? Yes. 
Mrs. Manning, what is your <clears throat> religious affiliation? I'm a Catholic. Catholic in good standing? Well, no, that divorce, you know. You mean you were excommunicated because of the divorce and remarriage? Yes. Mrs. Manning, wouldn't you say that a Catholic who can blithely ignore one of the cardinal rules of her church could also easily ignore an oath taken on one of its artifacts, say, an oath taken on Elizabeth? I don't think that's true. But wouldn't you think there'd be some doubt about the integrity of such a person? I don't know. Uh, all I know is the rosary means something to me. I see. Well, I'll pass on to something else. So uh, here he's, George, he's got is clearly trying to undermine, both undermine Laura Manion's credibility and paint her uh, or suggest that she is uh overly flirtatious uh and try to challenge the narrative that barney quill raped her and that it was something else right i mean he's i think connecting the dots of his cross-examination is your first marriage ended in infidelity with Mannion, and you were on the same course in this marriage and it was consensual and the reason that your husband was so upset was not really about Barney Quill. It was really with you, and he took it out on Barney Quill. And so that, I think, is the message in that cross. Yeah, which goes to your point about Laura Man, you know, that this is really the trial of Laura Mannion, uh, at least as much as it is of uh, Lieutenant Mannion, her husband. Um, right. her, you know, her background and her past is explored much more than his. Exactly. Exactly. They they uh, there's a, there's a scene where they try to well they show the scene in the jailhouse where the, the Mannion threatens uh, this guy. They get into a fight and he has to be. He looks like he's almost going to kill him. And they they it gets broken up. The prison guard comes along and they try to bring the guy in as an informant to testify against him. But uh, that's a little glimpse we get of Mannion. It's not and he doesn't. He's not very appealing. Right. If if it it looks like his his temper is something that he's conscious of even though uh obviously that's a provocation that's a lot less than a, a rape would be um, the real problem is that he doesn't tell jimmy stewart about this and even when the guy's on the witness stand he doesn't tell jimmy stewart about it and as a result the lawyer can't make a positive out of what looks like a negative and what i mean by that is jimmy stewart once the guy's on the stand jimmy stewart can cross-examine him and say you have a bias against Mannion because he 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 smacked your head against the bars and he smacked your head against the bars because you made incredibly coarse comments about his wife and you could argue that those coarse comments raised Mannion's temperature you could imagine what a rape would do and how that would set him over the edge into irresistible impulse so you can make a positive out of a negative but you have to I always tell clients if I'm the last to know, particularly in the courtroom at trial, I can't do much for you. And you can see Jimmy Stewart had very few options at that point because of the and because of the failure to to disclose. Yeah, it's a great point. And you mentioned that in practice when you know clients just don't tell you what you need to know. He he does. He catches a break, or uh, he, I guess he knew it before. He thinks on his feet. He gets the guy's rap sheet. The witness lies about how many convictions he has, so he gets he's really set up, and then. You know, he gets hammered when Jimmy Stewart introduces the rap sheet. He's got multiple convictions. But you're right. Like, it could have been really turned more to the defense's advantage if he had been, you know, explained what had happened. But, yeah. 
so yeah. be it. Um, By the way, they're much better prepared now, prosecution witnesses with long records. They bring it out on direct. <laughs> <laughs> right, get it out there and try to yes. utilize the, yeah, take the sting oh, out. Yep, it's called falling on the grenade, you know, and tries to blunt cross-examination. And I'm sure you've seen that in many of your trials, especially your, well, your narcotics, your organized crime trials, right? Uh, it's, it's, yes. the witnesses are often not the most savory uh, stand up people. Right. Right. Yeah. And just a, a back just to Laura Min, I mean, it's interesting too the, the, you know, how she's done, how she's depicted and the way some of it seems dated and problematic. Because uh, at the time, this film was a little bit more on the kind of cutting edge and how, at least in terms of how it was dealing with, uh, issues around um, just rape and consent. Uh, and so it was kind of a frank exploration of subjects that in 1959 were not uh, explored in such a way in a Hollywood film. Yes, and the language, you know, the, the, the references to panties over and over again, spermatogenesis, things like that. I don't recall, I don't recall hearing them in, in, in movies. I think... And um, To Kill a Mockingbird is, I think, three years later when rape is a factor in the trials. I'm not sure that and I'm not even sure in in, uh, in To Kill a Mockingbird it's it's discussed. It's it's not discussed in detail. It's really more about the aftermath of that. And so, uh, yeah, I, I can't think of a movie that was so mainstream, you know, with someone like Jimmy Stewart, Otto Preminger, Lee Remick, the, 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 the big stars that a, that confronted these issues in as candid a way as this movie. Yeah, there's that one scene when they the prosecution, Jimmy Stewart, as a sidebar at the bench uh, uh, with the judge, and they're just you know they're stumbling over what word to use, and the judge ultimately kind of settles on panties. But I mean, it's a little, it's you know, it's odd. It's a very male scene. I mean, the the, the gender dynamics of the courtroom have changed a lot, but it's you know, frank at the time, so it's both kind of was ahead of its time in some way, but seem, you know, also seems a little bit dated now, but it's an interesting yeah. aspect. Even, even more than 20 years later, when I started practicing, there was a reticence for frank language. And there was a lot of euphemism in all types of cases, both in language and in description. So that was a major hurdle to overcome. And this movie was ahead of its time in that regard. And so the and the case kind of comes down at the end. I mean, what ends up burying the prosecution, right? Dooming the prosecution is their cross examination of uh, Mary uh, Pilant, who worked in the well, who worked in the inn with Barney Quill and was a suit. Well, most people thought she was his you know, lover, right? And it turns out, um, thanks to the defense investigation, they find out they go up they go to Canada where she's from and they look up records. It turns out to be um, that that was his daughter. And so the prosecution kind of stumbles into that in the end where the Dorsey Scott is trying to hammer Mary Pallant to admit uh, that she had, uh, you know, had something going on with Barney Quill. And then, you know, it's pressing her on the relationship and, and Barney Quill, uh, sorry, Mary Pallant at the end says, I, you know, no, I was, I was, uh, I was his daughter and the courtroom stunned and, that's actually, that's the end of the trial scenes. They just cut the next thing's the verdict. So one of the cardinal rules of cross-examination is don't ask a question you don't know the answer to, right? So is that, was that an illustration of that rule or or, was, or, or should, yeah, can we not blame the prosecutor? 
I think that that's generally the rule on your feet. Sometimes you have uh, a belief that you can gamble based on what you know or don't know, or I mean, what you know, in other words, if you can eliminate all sorts of negative possibilities. And, and I think, again, this is somewhat gender related, is that I don't think he felt much of a threat from a woman to challenge him. And so he was able to go at her as hard as he possibly could. Whereas, if, so for example, I would never, you know, do that with a law enforcement agent, you know, ask a question that I didn't have a yes or no answer built into the question and give them a chance to go beyond that. That's very dangerous. There are certain other witnesses during the course of the examination, if you feel you've established control, you can take those gambles. In this instance, he didn't have the right to do that because he had not established control. And it was clear that they had interviewed her and never gone into this. And so as a result, he was really not uncharted waters and was a little, and it was somewhat arrogant of him to try. But I do know that look that he had on his face when, he, when she <laughs> answered, which is like, oh, I shouldn't have gone there. It happens to all lawyers if you try enough cases and, you know, have have enough situations where it doesn't go as planned. Yeah, one question too many. Um, yeah. and, he, and as you said, I think, you know, uh, very well, he, he didn't do himself any favors by being kind of so aggressive and, and kind of painting her into a corner and had the assumption that she was this kind of loose woman who was, you know, and then right. uh, having this affair. And it turned out she's the daughter, dutiful daughter. Yeah. And, and, and also, by the way, one of the things in his defense, I will say that there are points in cases which a witness is so devastating which is what she was with her testimony to the prosecution and unanticipated that you feel like you have to go for broke. You have no alternative. If you just let this witness get off the stand un, unharmed by the cross-examination, you've lost the case. So he may have felt that this was his only opportunity. And obviously he walked into a buzzsaw. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so let's turn for a minute to just compare uh, this uh film to other some other courtroom dramas in this sense is justice served that's kind of one question to explore and also i mean is it different in the sense that is the law portrayed as noble um uh, uh, uh the portrayal of the defense lawyer the defendant i mean one thing that strikes me here is as opposed to say a, a near contemporary film like 12 angry men where you've got an innocent person kind of being railroaded uh, and then the, the system saves him. How does the system look here to, and the law look? You well, There are a lot of different ways to look at it. I'll, I'll try to address some of them. One of them is that it's a moral outcome in the sense that if Barney Quill raped her and Mannion killed him for it, the public is okay with that. And the jury was okay with that. Uh, as long as there was some legal rationale that was presented, and that's what happened in the case. Uh, the second one you could look at is to say, well, it's really a matter of which side's lawyers perform better at the trial. Uh, it could Because Jimmy Stewart, in many respects, was more effective at communicating the equity of the defense, so to speak, than the prosecution was in trying to say, well, look, he killed this guy, he's guilty, that's it. Nothing else matters. That obviously didn't prevail because ultimately the judge lets the case get wider than that. So, 
And also one could look at it as gamesmanship. This is something in which a skilled lawyer and his, you know, his partner in this, in the Par- Parnell character, the Arthur O'Connell character is someone who feels like he's, he's, he's never lived up to his potential, but clearly intellectually had, had a lot going for him. So their ability to, to, to find a precedent and to apply it to this case it looks like it's uh, sort of winning the lottery in some respects. But ultimately, what I take from it, of all of these, is another, th- which is this, which is if you have a reasonable doubt about whether the person is guilty of the charged offense or not, then he's not guilty. And then justice is done. And that's how the system was designed to to perform. So if the irresistible impulse defense, which is valid, creates in the minds of the jury a reasonable doubt as to whether he had the proper intent uh, when he killed Barney Quill, then he should be acquitted. And to me, all the rest is the dynamic that's really hard to evaluate because there are all these elements in every case that could go in a lot of those directions. You know, sometimes it's a lottery as to what judge you get. So all these things are, are factors, but ultimately I think this is like sort of a classic reasonable doubt case. Classic reasonable doubt case, yeah, and a, and a case about narratives. I think, as you said, yeah. constructing narratives and who who can do that better, and that may be kind of implicit in what the title is. There's a kind of a cynical line at the end where you know, go back. We were talking how uh, Jimmy Stewart and Parnell, the co-counsel, assisted him. Uh, they go to uh, after uh, Mannion is acquitted. They go to where Mannion and uh, the Mannions were staying to try to get Mannion to sign the IOU, right? Because he didn't have any money to pay Jimmy Stewart up front. And as Jimmy Stewart's uh, assistant, right? Uh, Eve Arden was telling him, you know, you, you're you know, basically running, you don't have enough money to pay me, you don't have money to run your practice. Uh, and so they go, they try to get money and, and Mannings have split, right? There's a, a line at the end where Beagler says, well, he's been retained to do the estate of Mary Pilant, right? Barney Quill's daughter, and that's kind of poetic justice. So there's a little bit, I don't know, I read that as a little bit cynical um, or or not, but it certainly ends on, you know, that's kind of one of the last lines of the film. It, it, it's cynical, I think, because it, it reduces it, and not necessarily wrongly, it reduces it to a business proposition, which is, hey, look, you know, I didn't get paid but I performed really well in the case so that someone watching thought, Hey, this guy's a good lawyer and he hired me or she hired me. And, and as a result, uh, I made back what I would have lost from the case because he was only charging $3,000. And I guess the estate was going to be worth at least that much uh, in terms of his fees. So in that regard, uh, ultimately it, there's a little convergence there because at the beginning of the movie, Eve Arden, his his assistant, and O'Connell, uh, the Parnell character, are trying to motivate Jimmy Stewart to take an interest in his own law practice. He's out fishing all the time. So the movie begins with this notion that he really has gotten over losing the DA election and is kind of adrift professionally. And there's and and she says, you know, he one point he tries to fire Eve Arden, and she says, you can't fire me until you pay me my, my <laughs> salary. So to end it with this convergence at the, which is that this is essentially we're moving on to the next case because this is a business, is not is not it, it, it's a pretty accurate reflection of how you have to go about some of this as a as a as a as a, as a business proposition. 
Yeah, and you know, it, it, uh, you know, you're right. And there's a uh, there's kind of a redemption, or like for the for the firm, right? Because as you said, Jimmy Stewart is DA. He lost, and he's kind of retreated from law practice. He basically spends his days fishing. Uh, he's got like a, a refrigerator full of fish <laughs> and playing jazz on the piano, right? But he's not that interested until he's kind of called in from his like semi-retirement for this case. And Parnell, uh, who assists him, is a you know, I, I, I it sounds like was in his day a good lawyer, but is an alcohol, admitted alcoholic, right? Kind of washed up. And he's kind of redeemed through this. And um, Eve Arden, right, is is the one who's kind of trying to keep everything together, but they need some money. So in a sense, like the firm is kind of back up and running uh, thanks to the, thanks to the, you know, thanks to this case. There is that aspect of the justice, which is a little bit more of a positive spin. Yes. It's definitely true that the adrenaline from a positive result in the criminal defense business, because there aren't very many and the intervals between them can be long, is that one can sustain you for a longer period of time than you would think rational, but it doesn't. And in talking about the realism of the film, just before we uh, wrap up, I, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's, there's a lot of talent, but a lot of legal experience. And I wonder how essential you think that is. I mean, the book was written by a, uh, a Michigan Supreme Court judge. Otto Preminger, not a lawyer himself, prominent director, European director, came to the United States, but his father was a uh, a significant lawyer in, in pre-war period, right? So they have that. And Wendell Curran Mays wrote the screenplay, was also law-connected. Uh, and then finally, you have Joseph Welch, right, who's like, you know, the, embodies the law, the legal establishment, former prominent Hale and Door partner, who represents the Army and the Army McCarthy hearings and nails, finally nails, like, Joe McCarthy with the, you know, great line of, uh, have you no sense of decency, sir, long at last, kind of here playing the avuncular judge. So there's a lot of law talent around the movie. I, I wonder if you think that's important in terms of kind of making such a kind of, you know, realistic but entertaining film. I do think it's important because I think that the tendency of people who have only a popular notion of the courtroom and trials and the legal profession are much more likely to extend the narrative into places where you're constantly saying that would never happen. That would never happen. I mean, the, the, the best for me, the best courtroom dramas are ones where you don't say that more than once or twice. And you understand why it has to be done in the course of a drama, because, you know, the way shots are done and the way movies are uh, compressed into periods of time, like the book would be much longer and probably much more detailed. But the 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 presence of people who know that I think their 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 tendency is not to go into the into the hyperbole, into the zone where they would say that would never happen because they have the experience to know what happens. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to stay to actual realism. I think the mark of good fiction or good adaptation, which is what this is of, of a true story, is that uh, none of it happened, but it's all true. And I think when you get that feeling from a movie, you're satisfied. And so uh, would this be a movie you'd recommend for lawyers, law students, non-lawyers to see? It's 60 plus years old. As we said, it's dated in some respects. What do you think? Would you recommend people go out and see this? It's still the number one movie that I recommend for people who say, what do you think 
is the most realistic and instructive courtroom drama about a criminal trial and a criminal case that would give the widest bit of 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 information to someone i i always this is the one i recommend of course when you tell people it's black and white sometimes they give you a funny look but uh, it's still it's still the number one for me yeah and the cast is impeccable yeah. script the music everything uh and it's available for streaming at least on amazon and i probably some other right. uh, outlets as well well josh it's been so great talking to you about the movie uh thanks so much for joining us in law and film and uh Look forward to seeing you in around the courtroom, but although we're always on the same side, so <laughs> yes, that's a good sign. Yes, uh, thank you, Jonathan, uh, and uh, it was a pleasure. So um, uh, happy to do it. <laughs>